Now it's a pleasure to introduce my colleague, uh, Tim Lynch. Uh, Tim is a legal expert here at the Cato Institute. He's very involved in criminal justice issues. He's been involved in litigation. He's been involved in the amicus briefs before the Supreme Court in the United States with great success. And he's going to talk to us about what's happened partly as a result of what Mary Anastasia O'Grady talked about with the drug war to our criminal justice system. Tim. Thank you, Tom. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I do have a lot of material that I want to go over with you, so I think I'll just uh, dive right in. When it comes to uh, the American criminal justice system, uh, there's some good news and uh, there's some bad news. The good news is that if you look over your pocket constitution, which I'm sure everybody here has received, um, there's some great protections in here to guard against uh, government abuse and good protections for individual liberty. You know, no ex post facto law, no bill of attainder, uh, protections for jury trial, no unreasonable searches, no double jeopardy, and uh, due process of law. The bad news is that all of these safeguards have been under a relentless attack over the years by the government trying to water these things down. Uh, I'm sure Roger Pallon went over with you the other day about the doctrine of enumerated powers and the Tenth Amendment and how that has been eroded, the same type of erosion has happened with the provisions of our Bill of Rights. Now, one factoid uh, that you may have heard about our criminal justice system is that the United States has about 5% of the world population, but we have about 25% of the world's prisoners. We have more than 200 we're two and a half million people uh, behind bars. And to put that number into some type of perspective for you, it took us more than 200 years to lock up the first million, but it took us only the next 30 years to lock up the second million. So incredible acceleration of uh, prison uh, space here in the United States. During the 1990s and early 2000s, we were on average building a prison in the United States about one a week. So an incredible ex uh, expansion. As Tom mentioned, a lot of this is driven uh, by the drug war. Many drug cases, many drug prisoners uh, here in the US. And that even, the people behind bars doesn't even tell the full story. Because beyond the people that are actually behind the walls of the prison, there's another 5 million people that are under the supervision of the American criminal justice system. So when you add in all the people that are outside the prison walls but that are under probation or parole, we're talking about a total of 2 million behind bars and 5 million more people under the supervision of the criminal justice system. Two years ago, the Supreme Court issued an extraordinary order to California authorities to reduce their prison population. Now, I have to tell you that among lawyers, they know how extraordinary this order was because normally the judges just say, you know, the prison management, that's for you guys to decide. It's not something for judges to get involved in. But the conditions in California had gotten so bad. I mean, they're, they're operating more than twice uh, the design capacity of those facilities, just pushing more and more people into these facilities, operating well beyond their design capacity. The conditions had gotten so bad that the judges said, we have no choice, that it's just so bad we have to take steps and order the prison uh, people in California to re reduce their uh, prison population. 
So the American system is busier than ever, but surprisingly, uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer jury trials. Well, about 97, depends on the jurisdiction, but about 97, 98% of the cases that come into the American system are not adjudicated before juries. Uh, they are uh, resolved through a system of charge and sentence bargaining. Most Americans are astonished by this. You know, you know, in the abstract, you know, some cases go to trial, you know, some cases are plea bargained, but the percentages are overwhelming. It's either 95, 97, 98, depending on the jurisdiction, are resolved not through trials. They're resolved through charge and sentence bargaining. And a lot of people are mixed up about this because if you just, you know, casually follow the news, we're kind of bombarded by the cases that do go to trial. Like recently, it was the case of George Zimmerman, right? We're hearing about this on the news almost every night. But these are the rare cases, the rare cases that go to trial. And um, the Zimmerman case is actually a good recent example of how we've lost the safeguard against double jeopardy. If you've been following the news since the acquittal, you may have heard the calls for, hey, he's acquitted in state court. The federal prosecutor should get involved now and prosecute him in the, in the federal system. And so we're awaiting right now Attorney General Eric Holder and his decision about whether charges will be brought against Zimmerman. Um, the, the legal safeguard is not there. It's like up to the discretion of the Attorney General who says he is studying the case. So that's another example of how that safeguard uh, has been weakened. The ban on unreasonable searches. Well, instead of search warrants where agents uh, traditionally have had to apply to a federal judge to get approval to get that search warrant application approved so that they can go ahead and do a search, these days FBI agents are wielding what they call national security letters. They're using these letters, which do not need the prior approval of a judge, to go and seize property and records uh, uh, from businesses. This summer, of course, we learned about the National Security Agency that is gathering phone records, email records, internet surfing activity uh, on millions of Americans. And tens of thousands of Americans, mostly minority males in our central cities, are subjected to stop and frisk searches at the whims of, of, of police officers. So I'm sorry to say that the American criminal justice system it's in very bad shape. Uh, it's badly flawed and more flawed than most people want to see or admit. Now, it's not a happy conclusion, I know, but this is information that I think you need to know. So what I've done is I decided to divide this lecture into two parts. The first part is I want to take you through uh, some of the theory and explain in some more detail how our law has been moving away from some of our most basic foundational American principles. And in the second part of the session, uh, we're going to screen a film called 10 Rules for Dealing with the Police. The idea here is to teach you how to confidently assert your rights during a police encounter. You'd be surprised how many Americans get tricked into waiving their constitutional rights uh, during police encounters. Most searches happen not because the police have a search warrant or one of these national security letters. It's because they're trained in methods to trick people into waiving their rights. So by showing you this film, we're going to teach you a little bit more about how to handle yourself and not to get caught up uh, by some of these traps. OK, let me back up and start with some of the basic theory and, and some of our first principles, which is where we like to start all analysis here at Cato. 
uh, our Declaration of Independence uh, lays out our theory of rights. You know, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so following that document, we believe that the role or purpose of government is to help ensure that these rights are respected. Now, our rights can be violated in basically three ways. Our rights can be violated by hostile foreign governments or, or terrorist organizations. Uh, I'm sure Doug Bondo covered that material with you this morning. So we have the military to deal with that threat to our rights. Our rights can also be violated by common criminals. This morning on the news, uh, you know, we heard about this bad guy in Cleveland who held these women hostage for several years. He's going to be uh, sentenced today. And thankfully, it looks like he will never get out of prison. So crim or, or criminal element is also a threat to our rights. Our rights can also be violated by the government. Illegal searches, illegal wiretaps, uh, false arrests, illegal property seizures, wrongful convictions, these types of things. So the fundamental challenge has always been that we want to give the government enough power so that it can apprehend and punish criminals, but not so much power that the government itself uh, becomes destructive of the very freedoms we wanted it to protect us from in, in the first place, to protect us against the foreign threats and, and domestic criminals. Now, the most important insight or observation that I think a libertarian brings to the criminal law field is the idea that the state is a thousand times more dangerous than all of the common criminals combined. The government is the greater threat uh, to our liberty. Now, this is a point that is sometimes lost in our law schools. Law students and law professors sometimes say that, you know, we have some peculiar rules and procedures in the United States. Uh, you know, attorney-client privilege. Why, sh why should we respect that? Why, why, why don't we eavesdrop on those conversations? Why don't we uh, subpoena lawyers to tell us what their clients are telling them? Uh, we have protections against police interrogation. Oh, you know, why do we have limits on that? Uh, we have rules about uh, requiring jury verdicts to be unanimous. You know, isn't that too high? Why don't we lower it? They say that these are impediments to finding the truth. And they say that other countries have better criminal justice systems. They don't have these rules or impediments, so maybe we should rethink some of these rules. And I think the proper response is that our system was not set up solely with an eye towards uh, finding the truth. That's an important objective, but it's not the only objective. Our system was set up with a strong bias towards protecting the rights of citizens. Again, most of the protections in our Bill of Rights are designed to restrain and limit the power of government because the founders recognized, as I said, among all the threats to our liberty, they thought the government was one of the primary threats. So they put this emphasis on these procedural protections to limit the government to better protect liberty. So with those basic principles in mind, now I want to get more specific about some of uh, the basic American principles that I think are uh, uh, in, most, in the most danger these days from, we, from the way in which we observe the way the government is operating. And the first one I want to touch upon is the foundational principle that has been under attack in recent years, and that is the division between the military and civilian law enforcement. That has been a traditional American principle from the beginning, is that we want to keep these two things separate. But 
largely with the drug war, we are seeing there's two aspects to this militarization. On the one hand, the military itself is getting more and more involved in policing. We have um, marine units operating uh, in the interior of the country in Texas and along the border. We know that the Navy are using its assets in the Caribbean to chase uh, drug smugglers. Those are two examples. And we are also seeing our civilian uh, law enforcement agencies. This is the other aspect, the other side of the coin, is our civilian police units are increasingly adopting the tactics of our military. And there's, there's been a proliferation uh, of paramilitary units in our American police departments. They're, they're called different things in different jurisdictions. The most common thing is the SWAT teams. In other jurisdictions, they're called special response teams. Uh, but they all have one thing in common. They operate in a paramilitary fashion. Uh, when you look at the garb and equipment that they're carrying, uh, you know, the helmets, the camouflage uniforms, uh, the weaponry that they're carrying, uh, M16s, flashbang grenades, uh, and, and then the tactics that they're using, uh, uh, military-type tactics. Uh, you know, you've seen some of it on television, I'm sure, where they run up to a house, one knock on the door, and then the battering ram comes, and the door goes down, and then they go rushing inside, screaming. Sometimes these raids are done in the middle of the night, where the occupants of the home think that they're about to be burglarized, or have criminals coming in, and there's shootouts between uh, ordinary homeowners when they're going into the wrong house, uh, and, and the police. This is one of the most serious problems, I think, in American policing today, uh, is that we've uh, blurred the mission of these two, two different agencies. Uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, the role of the military is to find the enemy, to destroy the enemy. You know, they're not thinking about rights of people on the other side of the battlefield. Their mission is to find the enemy and subdue them. When it comes to the American policing, uh, police departments, we used to call them peace officers. The idea for them, they're encountering people who have constitutional rights. We want them to use the absolute minimum amount of force that may be necessary to bring a suspect into a court of law where things can be resolved peacefully, where the accusations can be aired in court, and where they can make their defense. So when we begin to blur these two different missions, the military mission and the policing mission, we end up with unnecessary confrontations, unnecessary shootings, unnecessary uh, injuries and, and deaths in some instances. If you go to the Cato website, we have a map that we've created a couple of years ago. We call it the RAID map. So if you just Google Cato and RAID map, we have a map of the United States where all of these paramilitary type raids have been conducted because it used to be the idea is like when one of these raids happened in a wrong door, wrong home situation and somebody was killed, people would say, gosh, that's terrible. Um, thank goodness it's a, it's a rare occurrence. And what we tried to do with this map is bring to the attention of more people that these are not rare instances, that these types of raids are happening hundreds of times uh, a month. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, most of the raids, like the wrong door raids, they go in, they discover it's a mistake and leave, but sometimes there is a shooting and sometimes it's a, it's a killing. And it's only then where usually the media get involved and start reporting on these instances. And sometimes it's the local city councils and city mayors 
is only when there's a death and a lawsuit against the city that they realize what their own police department is doing and how active. And you know, some of these SWAT teams and paramilitary units are not just in the big cities anymore. They're in some small towns. And the, 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 the local civilian oversight folks uh, are just totally unaware of it until a lawsuit is brought against the municipality. Then they're like, well, I didn't even know we had a SWAT team. We haven't had a murder in this town in seven years. What, what are they doing? Um, and so that's when the scrutiny comes. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's sometimes too late when, when, when somebody has been killed and, uh, and a lawsuit has been brought. Now, that's not to say that there's no place at all for, for SWAT teams. What we tried to point out in our scholarship here at Cato is to remind people that those units were initially created with the idea of some special limited situations, like a hostage situation, or when the police knew in advance they were going to encounter an especially well-armed group, then there might be a place for the SWAT mission. But what has happened is they've gone well beyond those special limited circumstances into routine policing activity, executing search warrants. And, and that's where the real problem is. The second principle uh, that is under attack is, is, is due, process, due process of law. And that's mainly through the use of the civil asset forfeiture laws that we've seen uh, increasingly used in the United States in, in recent years. This is where the police are seizing cash, cars, boats, homes, and even land from people without having to convict them of a crime in court. This is punishment without any trial. Our friends at the Institute for Justice are representing a couple who own a hotel, like a family hotel business, operate, operating on like 20 acres of land. They've owned this business for 25, 30 years, and federal prosecutors are trying to seize the hotel and the land on which it sits. And the federal prosecutors are saying some of the guests in your hotel were involved in drugs. And the prosecutors admit that there's no evidence connecting the owners of the hotel with these guests who happen to have drugs. They admit that. But they're still saying your property is subject to seizure uh, because of this very loose, tenuous connection. And the lawyers at the Institute for Justice have calculated, because they've owned this business for 20 years, they must have rented thousands of rooms over the years. And they've calculated that point, you know, 0012 have been involved in illegal activity. And yet, federal prosecutors are ready to seize this. This was going. This is where their retirement nest egg, all of their money is tied up in this business and they were going to sell it. This was going to be their retirement. And now it's at risk because it's in litigation uh, with these federal prosecutors. Wall Street Journal had a front page article on this and they explained that these types of seizures are happening all around the country. And sometimes it's not just these big items. Sometimes it might happen during a traffic stop where somebody is stopped a police officer will go through a woman's purse, take out some cash, and he'll say, I think this is drug money. If you want it, you go back to the police department and apply for it you know, in, in a couple of days. And they, they know they've got people over a barrel in these types of situations, because if they take you know, whatever, $50, $60, you know, somebody's going to have to take a day off of work. They might have to get an attorney. How many people are going to go back and challenge these things uh, in those types of circumstances? So it's at the small micro level that they seize these things. And it's also these big items, land uh, and homes.
One of the other, probably the most serious threat these days is what we call uh, over-criminalization. There are now so many crimes in the federal code that no conscientious citizen can possibly know what all of them are. Uh, there are thousands of them. And when you go into uh, and you include regulations uh, out there that are being promulgated by the EPA, uh, the IRS, and all these other alphabet agencies here in Washington, uh, and so many of these regulations, once they're issued, a criminal penalty is attached to many of them. So when you add those in, there's thousands more. One congressman asked the Congressional Research Service to report back to him and tell them, just tell me how many federal crimes there are. And after a while, the Congressional Research Service went back and said, we can't do it. They're scattered all over the code. It would take us, take us too long and it's too difficult just to count them. Uh, a few years ago, there was one case are being argued before the Supreme Court just involving one uh, federal criminal statute. It's called the Honest Services Fraud Statute. And the attorney for the federal government was up before the Supreme Court and he was arguing, saying, this is our interpretation of this law. And one of the justices interrupted him and said, oh, wait a second. According to your interpretation, you know, we've got about 200 million Americans in the workplace. According to your definition, I'd say about 150, Ameri 150 million Americans are on the wrong side of the line. And the attorney for the Department of Justice didn't dispute that fact. Their, their mentality is like, don't worry, we're not going to you know, harass the wrong person. We're only going to use this to go after the bad people. He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he was basically trying to assure the justices that, uh, don't worry, you know, we're responsible. We'll, we'll only use this in the right cases. Um, that's just one federal criminal statute where he said this. Um, so when you think about this, in this type of legal minefield, now think about the protections of our Bill of Rights, even if they were not being watered down. What good does a right to a jury trial uh, give you, or a right to confront witnesses, or to call your own witnesses, or to have a speedy trial or a public trial? If there's so many regulations out there that you can't go through life without tripping on them and getting on the wrong side of the line, these procedural protections of being able to have a jury trial, they're not going to be much help to you. Because there's no matter what you do, uh, you can get tripped up and nailed by, by prosecutors. So one of our most important priorities is to roll back these criminal codes, not only at the federal level, but also at, at, at the state and local level. Now these are, are the main problems. Uh, before we get to the film, I do want to highlight some of the pro positive trends out there, because uh, I do want to try and balance this out a little bit. There are some real problems with our system, as I said. There are some positive trends going on that I also want to identify before we uh, get to the film. The first one, uh, I didn't hear Mary O'Grady's talk, but uh, in the drug area, which is responsible for so much uh, uh, of the, uh, the problems in the criminal justice system, but these marijuana legalization initiatives that passed in Colorado and Washington State, uh, huge development shows that the political climate is finally shifting and that the voters are ready for change in this area. Um, I'm sure you've 
during your days here, you may have also heard about you know, the Portugal, what is happening there. They decriminalized all drugs. So finally, at long last, we are beginning to see signs of change that this drug war is finally winding down. We've got a ways to go, but it's definitely positive developments here uh, on that front. Second is the law on self-defense has been improving, uh, including the Second Amendment, the ability to keep a gun in the home, and the ability to carry a gun outside of the home with these shall issue uh, permit laws that have passed over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, despite efforts to use the Trayvon Martin uh, case uh, to build a case against the stand your ground laws, that effort, you know, although we hear about it on the news, that effort is largely failing. Uh, and uh, the President Obama's effort to use the Newtown tragedy to get more gun control laws passed through the Congress. We know that has failed. So there's still problems in this area. I don't know if you've heard about the case here in Washington, D.C. A few months ago, there was a boy who got a new bicycle for Christmas, and he was riding his bicycle around his neighborhood, and he turned a corner, and there were some pit bulls in an alley, which proceeded to attack him. One of his neighbors heard what was going on, ran into his house, got his gun, came out and shot uh, the pit bull to stop the attack. And then some police officers arrived, at, arrived after that. And uh, you know, as the guy hailed in the Washington Post as a hero for saving the life of a boy, no, uh, you know, what they said was that he has to get a lawyer because he's caught up in DC's very restrictive gun control laws. Uh, you know, firing his gun beyond his property line, I think, was the, was the regulation uh, in question. So that's what you mean when, when people say, you know, you know, you don't have anything to worry about if you haven't done anything wrong. Here in this case, the guy, what did the guy do? He saved the life of a boy, and he's still getting in trouble uh, with the authorities. So I'm not saying the gun control battle is, uh, is won. There's still lots of work to be done when you have cases like this. But there's no question about it, but where we are now than where we were 20 years ago. One of our studies estimated that we have about 10 million Americans who have these concealed carry permits that are uh, going, being able to carry a gun legally in their state uh, outside of their home. So this is a big development from where we were uh, 20 years ago. Third positive development is smartphone video technology has uh, created a small revolution in the area of police accountability. One of the things I'm involved in here at Cato is we have, uh, we track police misconduct. We have a, another website, you can link to it off the Cato page, it's, we call it police, the website is policemisconduct.net where we track police misconduct uh, uh, around the country. And so we have a lot of these stories that we're doing on a daily basis about um, uh, police doing things that they're not supposed to do. But this smart phone video technology is one, one of the things that we post videos from time to time. And you know, years ago, uh, when this information wasn't available, you would hear somebody complaining, you know, the police did this to me, and then the police deny it. And most people are like, God, you know, I don't know who to believe. You know, you want to give the credit to the authorities. So a lot of police misconduct was just kind of discounted, disregarded, because people didn't know what to think. More and more, though, we've got police officers caught on camera telling lies, doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, breaking the law. And I think that's opened the eyes uh, of many people that, look, this police misconduct does go on. Uh, and so it is creating 
uh, a small revolution in this area where people are more skeptical of the police and uh, want to take a closer look at the evidence of, of, of what happened in, in, in cases. So that's a very positive development. Another one is DNA evidence. It's also brought a small revolution to the criminal justice area. Um, now that we have this irrefutable evidence uh, that the government has locked up innocent people uh, for crimes committed by others, uh, again, it kind of has really shaken things up that you cannot always rely on, on, on prosecutors and the police. And we know with this incredibly strong, irrefutable evidence that miscarriages of justice do take place from time to time, more often than most people uh, would have believed. Uh, but with DNA evidence, now we just have to confront that fact that mistakes happen much more often uh, than people realize. Okay, so that's a quick walk through uh, the theory and some of the main problems that uh, we're facing in the substantive law. What we're going to do now is show you some uh, practical tips that you can learn to better handle yourself uh, during a police encounter. Um, now let me quickly set, set up this film that we're about to show. It's called 10 Rules for Dealing with the Police. And I've mentioned the Bill of Rights. And uh, if you look through the Bill of Rights, if you take a few minutes to you know, skim over those provisions, a lot of those provisions have to do with our criminal justice system. But they have to do mostly with the trial. They'll talk about you know, the right to a speedy trial, right to a jury trial, uh, right to confront witnesses, right to call your own witnesses, and this sort of thing. By the time you're going to trial, you're already going to have a lawyer who's kind of guiding you through the process, telling you things you, know, you should do, things that you shouldn't do. But there's two provisions of the Bill of Rights that come into play well before any trial. And the first one is the Fourth Amendment. And that's the one that protects us against you know, warrantless searches, unreasonable searches, uh, and seizures. And the second one is the Fifth Amendment, which uh, is the protection against self-incrimination. These are the ones that come into play when it's just you and the police officer. And the police are trained in techniques, as I mentioned earlier, they're trained in techniques to get people to waive their rights. And under the law, rights can be waived uh, if, you don't, if you're not paying attention. The, the law requires people to assert themselves and to, you know, to say that they're not waiving their rights. And that's kind of what this film focuses in on. It kind of shows you the common traps and techniques the police use to get you to waive your rights and how you should handle the situation. It's kind of an entertaining film. It kind of is, it's a series of skits, and the first skit is usually where the person doesn't know anything about their rights and how they can kind of quickly get into trouble. And then they'll do a second skit with the same scenario, but somebody who's a little bit more, more knowledgeable about things and how they assert their rights and how there uh, can be uh, a different outcome. Just one other thing I, I want to point out before we start the film is the producers of this film uh, wanted, uh, one of their challenges is that they wanted a film that would be broad-based. It wasn't just designed for like white, middle-class, college-educated folks like the people we have here. They wanted a film that would be broader to so all age groups and including people who haven't, you know, finished their education. So there is some, come, you know, some uh, slang and profanity uh, for that reason, because they wanted to reach kids in high school, and, 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 and <laughs> that's the way they talk. And, and so uh, you'll see what I mean as we get into it. So we'll start the film now, runs for about uh, a half hour, and then I'll make a few more remarks, and then we'll take your questions afterward.
I like that grandmother at the end. <laughs> She's great. I've uh, screened this film uh, dozens of times at uh, universities and some community meetings, and I always like show it each semester to Cato interns because I don't want them to leave Cato without knowing a little bit more about their constitutional rights and how to handle themselves uh, in a police encounter. Uh, one of the most common reactions I get after we've screened the film is people are surprised that the police can lie to you. Uh, and that's a big one. Uh, they can lie to us, but we will get in very big trouble if we tell a lie to them. So remember, if they ask you a question that you're, you know, you're worried about, the, the rule is always to decline to answer the question rather than to give them false information, which can get you, like I said, in, into hot water. Um, another common reaction I get is that sometimes people will say, well, you know, that's not really a fair portrayal of the police. You know, it's not the type of police kind of conduct I've run into during my experience. And the, the film is, they were kind of missing the point with that. The, the, the film is not designed to be a representative sample of police work. That would kind of be a boring film of, you know, somebody driving patrol all day long. That's, you know, that's typical police work. The idea of the film is to explain this doctrine of waiver and how people can kind of get tricked into waiving their constitutional rights. And in order to illustrate that point, you have to create scenarios like this where uh, the pressure tactics and things that they will say to people in order to get them to waive their constitutional rights, such as, you know, well, you, if there's nothing in the car, you don't mind if I look, right? You know, this is a common tactic. So that's, that's really uh, the purpose of the film. And another thing to remember, he touched on this briefly, is that you want to remember that the police are people, they fall along a spectrum. You know, at one end of the spectrum, you might have police that are very professional, very respectful of constitutional rights, and that sort of thing. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have police officers who are corrupt, officers who engage in misconduct, officers that are unprofessional. You might run into an officer that is, you know, this close to being kicked off of the, out of the department because he has a long list of complaints against him. Now, most, of course, fall somewhere in between those points on the spectrum. The thing you want to remember is that we don't get to choose which officer we're going to run into. So uh, the point is that knowing a little bit more about your constitutional rights is going to protect you uh, regardless of the type uh, you run into. OK, before we take your questions, I just a, a few other things, um, the things that you can do. Actually, you know, go home after Cato University and some steps that you, that you can take. First of all, this film that you've just seen, 10 Rules, is available on YouTube. Uh, the purpose is not really to sell videos. It's just to disseminate the information so the people who are behind it put it out there. So one of the things you should do is, for those involved in social media, is you should link to this film and blast it to everybody that you know if you think it contains valuable information. Um, Another thing that you, uh, I, I recommend is that with the handouts, I don't know if everybody got the handout for this lecture, but there's a pile on the table outside. But uh, among the items in the handout I prepared for this lecture is a, is a sheet put out by the ACLU. It's designed to be a wallet card where they've kind of condensed reminders of what your rights are. And the idea is to fold it up and hold it in your purse or, or in your wallet. And I recommend that you take it out and read it from time to time, because everybody now is fresh. You know what to do you know, in the next couple of weeks. But this information you know, will be rusty for you in whatever, two or three months. So 
you know, the next time you're waiting in a dentist's office or a haircut or whatever, that's the time I take out the wallet card and just, you know, in three minutes, you're fresh again. So uh, that's another thing to, to keep in mind. Another suggestion I give that's not in the film is that we've kind of, you know, with our, with our uh, smartphones, we've kind of gotten the way of, out of the habit of uh, knowing people's telephone numbers. And so another suggestion I give is that you write down a few telephone numbers, you put it on a business card, and you keep it away from your, in a separate place from your phone in your wallet. Because again, you don't know the type of police officer you will run into. They might take the phone away from you uh, when they arrest you. Then where are you gonna be if you don't know anybody's telephone number anymore? So that's another thing, easy thing that you can do. Another thing that you can do is that, you know, especially for students at universities, you can take this film and you should hold an event at your college or university, screen the film. It's an easy thing that you can do. And if you go to the Flexure Rights website, they have a list of concrete suggestions about how you can put on an event. Uh, you can also hold an event you know, in your community, uh, you know, whatever, your frat house, sorority house, or another group that you're involved in, gun clubs and this sort of thing. It's a, it's a good, fun event to put together. All you have to do is get the film. You know, it's just $20 if you want to get the DVD order pizza, and there you go. You've got a good, good event to hold. Last thing, I mentioned the website I'm involved in uh, called the policemisconduct.net. Um, we aggregate police misconduct stories from all around the country, and a lot of people send us uh, stories to post on our website, and this is another easy thing that you can do to help us to hold police accountable. So it's not so much the national stories which we find uh, uh, but in your local community, if there's a local newspaper or online where you see a police misconduct story, uh, it just takes two minutes to get a link and send it to our site so we can aggregate it uh, uh, on our website. So that, that would be helpful as well. With that, I think we'll close and, and take some of your questions. I, I really thank you for your attention. Okay, I guess uh, we'll start right here. Thank you. I remember that there was a recent case where. I don't think it's on. Yeah. All right, now it is. There's a recent case where the a man chose uh, to remain silent, and the police were actually able to use that as evidence to his guilt in the court. Can you expand upon that whole situation and what to do about it? Yes, uh, this is a case that was just before the Supreme Court this past term. The, ca the case is called the Salinas case. And what the court was looking at was that it's clear from the Miranda, the stuff you hear on television, that after you've been placed under arrest, that's where they give the famous Miranda warning where they say you have the right to remain silent. And what the Supreme Court was addressing this term is like, what about before the arrest? What about if they're just questioning you, but you haven't been actually placed under arrest yet, what happens then? What if you choose to remain silent then? Can the prosecutors use your silence against you in court? Cato, actually, we filed an amicus brief in that case saying that the same principle is at stake. You know, if somebody's exercising the right to remain silent, that is their option. Prosecutors shouldn't be able to use that against somebody in court, but unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled otherwise, and well, what they actually held is they kind of postponed that question about silence before arrest. And what they decided, the way they decided to handle the case was they said that that person in that case did not 
take enough initiative to say that I'm invoking my constitutional right to silence. He, he was being asked questions by the police and he was answering some of the questions and then when it came to other questions, he just stopped. Mm. And, and then the police were like, aha, and they wanted to use that. So they, I think in a wrong-headed decision, they said, they kind of put the onus on the individual, you know, like you have to do more to invoke your rights. That's why this film is so important. Under the law, you have to assert yourself. You have to, like, in these scenarios, you have to clearly say, I don't consent to searches. Uh, or, um, you know, I, I'm not going to answer any other questions. You have to assert yourself. And that, that's what the Supreme Court decided in that case. I, I think they were wrong the way that they decided it, putting the onus on the individual rather than on the state. But that's how the case was decided. Thank you. If, if, if you invoke... Yep, you can get into trouble that, that way. That's why attorneys are constantly trying to say, be quiet, because people have this inclination when they're asked questions. They think they can explain their way out of the situation. And what more often than not that happens is you're digging yourself into a deeper hole. There's a well-known criminal defense lawyer here in Washington who handles like the big shot clients. And he has, uh, I read that he has a, a, a fish on a plaque hanging on the wall of his office. And he said, and the, under the fish it says, if I had kept my mouth shut, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> He's constantly trying to tell people. And this is what got Martha Stewart in trouble too, is that constantly talking to investigators, trying to explain your way out of it instead of just maintaining quiet, I want to talk to an attorney. And that's why sometimes you'll see on TV, and it seems ridiculous, and sometimes politicians want to exploit it when they're ask people questions all over again, and uh, they'll, they'll ask them basic questions like, well, what's your address? And the person will say, you know, I, I decline to answer. And it all seems very absurd, right? But what happens if you study the law, like if you're testifying before a grand jury, that happens too. And as you said, you might invoke the fifth here, but once you start asking some other questions, the courts will rule, now you've opened the door to this subject. Now you can't invoke your right to silence anymore. You have to answer. So that's why attorneys, out of an abundance of caution, say, just say, invoke the fifth advice of counsel to everything. That way we're not going to get into trouble with that waiver question. But there's a reason behind it. Uh, oh, back over here. Thanks. Uh, I have an app application on my Android. Sorry for the older folks who don't understand the technicality of this question. From the ACLU of New Jersey, and when I asked, uh, when I app use this app, it makes it seem like my phone is off and records all sound and video and is stored on the internet, right? It's used for particularly police encounters. Would this, in any case, in any, in perhaps in some jurisdictions and some, uh, in others not, would that be illegal, recording without information or notice or consent? Um, we'd have to check the rules in each jurisdiction uh, before I could answer that, you know, giving a blanket generalization. But in general... Uh, recording the police when they're out in public doing their job, recording them either with video or audio is generally legal and you won't get into trouble for that. Um, but this is an emerging area of the law, a law, area of the law that's very hot right now. Um, we're winning that in the courts, but that doesn't mean that out on the streets tonight you don't run into officers who will see somebody filming them and they'll go over there and say, turn that thing off. Um, even though you have a right to 
to do it and you'll win in court, that's not going to stop an officer from saying, turn that thing off. And again, the general guideline from the film is you want to follow police commands, but you know, assert your rights when it's a request. So if he came over to me and said, turn that thing off, you know, I might start, my first response might be the officer, you know, I have a First Amendment right to film police. And we're out in public, I'm not interfering with your work. Now, we, now it's back to him. What does he say? Does he back off? Or he might say, all right, we'll stand across the street and do that. You know, we're doing an investigation here. That might be one response. But if he, he says, you've got two seconds to turn that thing off right now, now it's back to you. That sounds like a command to me. So follow the command. Uh, but if it's just a request, then you know, follow your own prerogative. Now there are activists out there. You know they're on YouTube, constantly putting film clips of the police. There are activists out there that are willing to go to, to prison to to get arrested in order to fight this stuff in court, in order to establish a legal precedent that people can film. But for most of you, for most of us. Our objective is not to get arrested, so this is the guideline to follow. You follow their commands, but where they ask permission to search, or they ask, uh, you know, do me a favor and turn that thing off, that sounds like a request. So, so sorry, officer, you know, I, 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 we have a First Amendment right to film, and then and see how he plays it from there. Thank you. Uh, so you briefly touched upon uh, the use of DNA evidence uh, with expanding modern technology. Uh, so this year, uh, in June, the Supreme Court uh, decided Maryland v. King, right? And they decided that uh, if you are arrested, they can take a you know cheek swab and uh, test your DNA against a database uh, of crimes uh, which they have DNA evidence for. And uh, Scalia wrote the dissent, you know, very vehemently. Uh, claiming that this was uh, an injustice against the uh, <clears throat> against your Fourth Amendment rights um, to sort of uh, unjust uh, searches, right? This is a general kind of search. Uh, so, in your opinion, <clears throat> do you think the court, uh, the five to four court, made the correct decision in allowing uh, sort of the general use of DNA? Right. Now, this question is about the other side of DNA evidence. The part I was referring to is like when you have a prisoner who's locked up for, say, a rape, and he is maintaining his innocence, and he says, like, let's get a rape kit, and let's test this against my DNA, because I didn't do it, and the DNA test will prove I didn't do it. And then we have the government fighting him, denying him that test. Uh, that's becoming more rare, but years, you know, 10 years ago, the prosecution would fight these types of DNA tests. And so that's a use where the person wants the DNA test. He's, he says it can establish his innocence. And so that's what I was referring to. What the gentleman is asking about is a Supreme Court case that came before the court last term where the police want to take DNA swabs on people who don't want that done. So they want to take your DNA and put it into a database. Um, so it's typical of the government, right? It's like, when you want the DNA test, they're denying it. And when you don't want them uh, you know, taking your bodily fluids or whatever, they're like, well, you have to. You don't have any choice about it. So I think that's the difference. I think Justice Scalia made uh, the right points in that dissent, but that's another case in which we unfortunately lost. Uh, these DNA d data banks are growing, and they're, they're taking uh, DNA swabs without, you know, 
without a, a proper legal basis to do so, and I think that's a problem. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard. I go to American University. Um, a couple days ago, I had the opportunity to talk to um, his last Mr. Pyron about um, Pylon, sorry, about his uh, article they co-authored with Richard Epstein on the defense of the NSA. And in that article, he mentioned that it is constitutional since in our Fourth Amendment, it allows for reason, I mean, it allows for searches, but not unreasonable searches. According to the video, um, they said that you have the right to refuse to a search. I mean, you have the right to refuse to consent to a search. And also, I believe it's the Supreme, two Supreme Court cases, United States versus Bond and United States versus Jones. One is about, you know, even squeezing your luggage to see what's in there is, you know, a violation of your right, as well as I think this GPS tracking system of, um, of this truck is also considered, um, you know, infringement upon your Fourth Amendment right. I was wondering if you could give me your thoughts on that and that is applicable to the NSA surveillance scandal that is going on. Right. Um, well, you know, you can still tell from the questions there's only so much ground we can cover in a, in a short yeah. film. So, you know, I've got sh books that take up shelves in my office about Fourth Amendment doctrine and, uh, you know, all the various rules that, that apply. I mean, it gets, it gets complicated very fast. The purpose of the film is that you can learn two or three simple things and you know without becoming a lawyer I liken it to like a first aid class that you can take on a Saturday morning and learn you know the Heimlich maneuver and how to stop bleeding and that sort of thing you don't have to become a paramedic but you can learn a few techniques in just you know an hour or two and that will take you a long way that's the purpose of this film you know I refuse I don't consent to searches you know are you detaining me or am I free to go I know you're just doing your job officer but you know I don't have anything to say just you know, people think sometimes the, the, the interns here think it's too simple. They want to get into the complicated stuff. But in the pressure of a police encounter, people forget everything. And, uh, and that's why, believe me, if you just can remember those three things, you're ahead of 95, 97% of the people out there. Now, you're asking about the NSA and, and the Jones GPS tracking that's getting into, you know, more complicated Fourth, Fourth Amendment doctrine. And, uh, yeah, in the libertarian community, there, there's been some debate over the NSA stuff. And, and I think what they're doing, you know, is closer to the general warrant stuff that is prohibited by the Fourth Amendment by this, you know, gobbling up phone records and email records. You know, I think it's more akin to that than some people are taking the view that, well, it's national security uh, and it's reasonable under those circumstances. I, I disagree with that point of view. And then I have one quick question. Um, when it comes, I think Mr. Pylon was talking about, you know, if, if it's a constitutional or not. But my case, or my, um, I guess my concern is that whether or not it allows for a bigger government and more authoritarian government through law, enforce, law enforcement agencies, um, the military intelligence, what's your stance on that? Would you, you know, stand by something that is constitutional or would you stand by something that allows for a bigger government? I mean, would not allow for a bigger government? Yeah, I think that that is a good point I think your professor was making, that even if we disagree on the constitutional question, we can still have the policy debate, right? right. Do we want, putting the Constitution aside, do we want the government to be able to do this stuff or should we change it? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. Now, before, the general rule we had was that the NSA and these intelligence agencies were taking their high-powered technology and going out of the United States. Now they're turning it uh, inward 
And I think, I think that's a big problem. I think it's problematic. And I, I, I agree with Rand Paul and the other people who say, you know, we've got to, we've got to change this or our liberties are in serious danger here. Not just thinking about the next two or three years. This is the problem with most of our, our friends and neighbors. They just think about the next two or three years. I'm not worried about, you know, our government. You know, we have to think about 20 years from now. We don't know what's, what's going to be in place. And they're putting, to get, putting this architecture in place now and uh, it's not just the short term. We have to think of the long term here. All right. Thank you. Well. Hi, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a law student, and I don't think I'll be going into criminal law, but um, it was really eye-opening to have a whole semester of this, and uh, I, I think the video was really great. I would have liked it before my final. Even if you don't go into criminal law, Every lawyer is asked these types of questions from time to time. Yeah. So no, uh, these true. are the types of things your relatives want to know about and, and your friends. Because a lot of people, you know, you know you have constitutional rights, but you also know you can get into trouble for disobeying a police officer. And so everybody's kind of like in this box and they're not sure what to do. And that's why some of these things are helpful. It gives you a little bit more guidance on, you know, what can and, and cannot be done. Now, um I'm from New York City, so I, I agree. Um, we get that a lot. Um, I have uh, a couple of very quick questions because I've been thinking about it a while. Um, everybody's here voluntarily, so I hate to take up your time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one relates to third-party doctrine, which is very similar to the NSA. Third-party doctrine uh, seems a little outdated, and there's even been some murmurings in the court, third-party doctrine where you give your documents to a third party and suddenly you have no, pretty much no right to privacy to them. Uh, that might be abandoned. I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit. Okay, the third-party doctrine basically means, like, let's say um, there's three parties. There's me, let's say there's my bank, which has my banking records, and then there's the government, which is the third party. Or it depends on who you're talking about, who's the third. But the government, well, let's say, wants my banking records. They don't come to me to ask for my records. Instead, they go to my bank without me knowing about it. And then the rules are like, all right, what are the rules in these types of situations? Can the government go to the bank without uh, my permission or consent and get my financial transactions? And the bank is usually in this situation of like, well, if you have a warrant or a subpoena, we will comply with it. And, uh, and the Fourth Amendment's protections uh, don't kick in because even though it's my information, the bank is the one holding the records. So the courts have said, well, this is a third-party doctrine. Um, I don't have standing to challenge the search later in court and that sort of thing. And these days, uh, as everybody is pointing out, this, we just it's different from, this is one of the things that's different from 1776, right? It's like we're, we had all our records in our homes, but increasingly the bank has our financial information, uh, a hospital has our health information, um, and, and the Google and Yahoo, and they have our email information. So the government is going around to those places to get information on us, and that's why we're asking that the third party doctrine uh, uh, be rethought. I know a lawyer who has a criminal practice, and he, you know, shopped around for a bank. And he, he went to a bank to say, look, I have my practice, and I know you have to comply with a subpoena from the FBI or from law enforcement, but if they come and, and ask for, you know, my records, I, want, I just want you to notify me of that. And so they entered into a contract 
on that basis. And he said, all right, I'm going to give you my business. All you did to do, the FBI was here yesterday. They asked for this or whatever. So he could put, be put on notice of that. And that was in place for many years until the Patriot Act came along. And that's when, with these national security letters, uh, it makes it a crime for people to talk about the letters and this sort of thing. So we are moving down this road uh, with these new rules where people cannot even, through contract, be notified about what the government is asking for with respect to their personal information. So that's the third party doctrine. We're trying to fight it, but right now the courts have have been resisting it. We'll have to see what happens in the, in the coming years. Uh, my second question involves, you talked about how so few percentage of the trials are actually jury trials at this point, but even more so, jury nullification, which used to be kind of the hot stuff, uh, has really dwindled, or at least it's my impression that very few states have it now. And uh, it used to be a real check against you know oppressive laws. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, uh, I know it's not really directly on point, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about jury nullification and whether it might have a resurgence or whether it might die. Oh, I'm glad you brought it up. If you, again, go to the handouts that I, that I prepared, there was a few items in there about jury nullification. Jury nullification is basically I, the idea that when there is a jury trial, that jurors get to vote their conscience. So even if the person is in technical violation of the law, if you think it's unjust to convict the person, uh, then you can vote no. Uh, you bring your conscience uh, t into play. So let's say it's a medical marijuana case. This is you know, what the example I would use for most audiences. In the libertarian audience, we can, can go into a lot of different situations. But you know, so some, your average person might think, well, the drug laws, they should know better, you know, convicted. <coughs> uh, but in a medical marijuana situation, the, 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 uh, the government will try to exclude and not let the jury know about like the person's medical condition that his doctor rec recommended it, and that he was only using marijuana to treat his medical condition. In that type of situation, the jurors might feel differently if they had that information. And so even though the federal law is very strict, look, you possess marijuana, uh, marijuana. There's no medical exception under federal law. So somebody in that circumstance might say, look, I just disagree with this. This person shouldn't be convicted. The example I gave earlier about the guy who used a gun to save the boy's life, shot a dog, and the prosecutors were saying, well, you're in violation of D.C. gun laws. That's another good example of where you would want jurors to know that they can vote their conscience with that, this, those things. You're right about the law. Um, uh, the, the government discourages, goes to extraordinary lengths, actually, to discourage jury nullification and to keep jurors in the dark about that option, that prerogative that they have. Typically, at the end of a jury trial, just before the jury goes off to deliberate, the judge will give them instructions, and he will say, look, my job is the law. I decide what the law is. You, you should apply the law as I explain it to you. Your job is the facts. You find out which witnesses you believe. You decide the facts. But again, in some of these situations, like medical marijuana, the person might say, there's no really facts in dispute. Yes, I use marijuana. I use it to treat my illness. Or yes, I fired and killed the dogs. There's no question <coughs> about it. It was my gun. That's what I did. The facts aren't in dispute. It's an application of the law. So that's, that's where it comes into play. They discourage it a lot. But New Hampshire changed its law last year uh, more in favor of jury nullification. So, and we're actually, Cato's going to be releasing an e-book about jury nullification in like two or three months in order to you know, get good information out there to more people on that subject.
I have one more, but I'll, I'll defer. Yeah, let's go over I here. The last one. And I can oh. talk to him after. Yeah, <laughs> and then if we want our, our colleague who runs the EV to have a chance to take a break today also. <laughs> uh, so let's make this the last. Okay, I, I had an odd experience several months ago that's been on, that's sort of bothered me ever since. And uh, I was in a movie at a multiplex, and I didn't like it, so I just left in the middle of the movie. And uh, after I came out the door, a policeman came, uh, hailed me, said, you know, stop. And, uh, you know, I turned around and he says, can I see your ticket? And I said, what, are you an usher? What, are, <laughs> you look like a policeman. Are you an usher? Why, why do you want to see my ticket? And he, he said, well, people who... Uh, 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 people have uh, reported having their iPhones and their uh, tablets stolen, uh, and uh, we think that it's uh, uh, we're checking people who are leaving the film uh, before it's over. Never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of it either, but it's been bothering me ever since. And uh, I said, I don't have a ticket. <laughs> And he says, I'll have to escort you out. I said, I'm, I'm leaving anyway. But, you know, without going into, uh, you know, this whole banter, I'm just wondering when, you know, at the very first question, should I, should I, should I have said, do you have reasonable cause to ask me that? Well, you see, the police always argue that these encounters that they have with people are consensual. What's wrong with me coming up to you? Like, like I could approach you and say, hey, why are you leaving the theater? You know, like any person can approach yeah. you and ask you questions. So that is their argument. Hey, I'm just going to talk to the guy. But he asked so me for a ticket. That's not his job. If you want to talk to him, you can. That's your choice. But if you, if you say, look, I've, <laughs> I'm leaving. Uh, I don't need to talk to you. Then you leave. They sometimes try to use their body language, yeah. like, like standing in front of you, to make you think that you can't leave. And that's, again, where the law puts the onus on you, you have to say, officer, are you detaining me or am I free to go? Then that puts him on the spot and he's either got to assert his authority or let you go. So, so from the very first question, I could have refused to answer him. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I read in the newspaper months later that they arrested a kid at another theater who'd actually been stealing uh, things while people were watching the same movie. But he was, you know, an 18-year-old kid. <laughs> you know, he wasn't an old man. Who, you know. All right, now he could say anything. He could say, I'm worried about iPhones, I'm worried about drug dealing, I'm worried yeah. about gun running. You can, it's your choice. You could say, well, that's very interesting, officer. I've got to be going home now. Or, yeah. or you can say, oh, really? Well, would oh, you like told, to look in my bag? I have nothing to He did hide. lie to me. He, said, he says, you know, you know, stealing an iPhone is a felony. Do you know what a felony is? And it happens I do. <laughs> And, you know, I, I don't think there's any iPhone that's worth more than $1,000. But, but anyway, uh, it was a very strange encounter. One other quick point from the guy who was over here from New York. Um, one thing's like police officers stop people on the streets, like in your situation, and they will sometimes say, empty your pockets. And although the law in New, in New York City is like they've decriminalized marijuana, but you can't have it in public. So one of the tricks they've had is they stop people and say, empty your pockets. And if you had a bag of marijuana in your pocket and he tells you to empty your pockets, once you bring it out, then they arrest you for possessing marijuana in public. 
And that's the way they've tricked people and, and arrested thousands of people for that basis. So that's, again, a subtle way of where you can quickly get into trouble if you didn't say, officer, I don't consent to searches, and then let him do it. Then it can be an illegal search that can be challenged later. Anyway, we've run out of time. I'll be available later to answer more questions.